Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Holy cow, we're halfway. Woo! Halfway through the book of Romans. This is one of like, this is considered to be the climactic chapter of the book of Romans. Uh, up until this point, Paul has been making a progressive, like, upward points. Like, he's been, he's, we, we've been moving forward up until this point. Like, we're, 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 like, climaxing at, like, the peak of, like, what it means to be a Christian. And so we're going to talk about, like, some of those things in this chapter. Uh, but just a chapter, just to, like, kind of give you a window as what's to come. Chapter 8 uh, consists of these wonderful truths that we can enjoy today as believers. And one of them is being free from God's condemnation. That's actually the first verse. Everybody can probably quote verse 1, actually, for there is now what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ. He's very good. Uh, the next is we're indwelt by God's own spirit. What the heck does that mean? We'll talk about that. We're adopted into his family. Um, I kind of know what that means, but what does that mean? Uh, we'll talk about that. Uh, we're destined for resurrection and glory. That sounds complicated, right? So the next thing is we're full of hope because of God's love for us and his promise to bring good in every circumstance. So today's passage, Paul is actually quite preoccupied with the work of the Spirit in the believer, especially the Spirit being our liberator and our guarantee. But Paul's going to sum up everything he said in the previous chapters, and it's going to kind of be summed up in this one chapter. So yeah, so these are, are Paul's implications. Some of the concepts that we're going to be talking about today aren't explicitly stated in the text. But the answers that we're going to pull from the, the passage today are implied with the content. Does that make sense? Um, you'll see as, as we kind of go along. But uh, we're going to be talking about things like reconciling a sinful spirit and depraved sinful flesh. So the fact that we're sinful and depraved and dying, but yet we have a perfect spirit. So Paul's going to help us reconcile those two that shouldn't, shouldn't be together, um, but they are. He's also going to address concerns that some Christians might have um, for how their sinful tendencies might impact their eternal future. Have you ever wondered how your sin impacts your eternity? We're going to talk about that today. Does my sin affect my future as a believer? Everybody answer on the count of three. One, two, three. Okay. We're going to talk about it. <laughs> What does it mean to us as believers that we still have to die physically? Because I'm a believer, why do I still have to go through the death process? Why does my body have to physically die? Why do I have to physically die as a believer? Um, that's important, and it's something that we're going to talk about tonight. So these verses are easy to understand. So every verse that we're going to talk about today is like once we break it down, you're going to be like, oh, that makes total sense. But sometimes when you read scripture at face value, it's, it's a little bit hard to understand, so it takes just a little bit of scratching for us to like get a better grip on what the author is trying to tell us. Let's look at the breakdown. Oh, go back to the title. Adopted Sons and Daughters. We're going to talk about what that means at the end, that we are adopted sons and daughters, and what the implications of that are in terms of our relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So I'm going to get all Trinitarian on you guys, all right? All right, overview, you guys can write this down, verses one through four, and I, I kind of tried to make sense of this, like I tried to make this make sense, I don't know if that makes sense, but consequences for our eternal security, we're going to talk about that one through four, five through eleven, consequences for living in the flesh and the spirit, what does it mean, what are the implications if I live, if I choose to live in the flesh, what are the implications if I choose to live in the spirit, if you think about it, we've been talking about that this whole stinking time, haven't we? 
What are the implications of living in the Spirit? What are the implications of living in the flesh? Real quick, what are the implications of living in the Spirit? What are the results if you choose to live in the flesh? I mean, in the flesh. Death. Death. Sin. Yeah, what are the results? Or, um, what is, yeah, what's the result if you choose to live in the Spirit? Freedom and eternal life. Life. Yes. Verses 12 through 14, what are the consequences for being led by the Spirit? We just said it. Verses 15 through 17, consequences for having the Spirit of adoption. What? There's a spirit of adoption? I thought there was the, only the Holy Spirit. Well, there is the spirit of adoption as well. Before we get into anything, though, let's pray. Yeah? Let's bow our hearts. Come before the Lord. Jesus, thank you so much for this day. Just for the fact that we can come in this place and open your word for the purpose of knowing you in greater and greater ways. And like Paul prayed, would we grow in our knowledge of God so that we would be filled with the love of God, so that we would be filled with the knowledge of God. Lord, thank you so much for your word. You've entrusted it to us. I pray that we would be good stewards of it, that we would study ourselves approved today. Jesus, I pray that you would open up our hearts. Like we sang earlier, open the eyes of my heart, God, because I want to see you. I want to see you lifted high, shining in the light of your glory. And that happens when we read and when we study your word, God. I pray that today um, that would be a reality for us. I pray that at the end of this message, we would turn to you just in awe and worship of all that you've done for us, of the realities of, of, of being a Christian, of being a believer, of being adopted, of having the spirit of adoption, that we would leave this place with a sense of awe and wonder of your greatness, of your majesty, of your grace, and of your love for someone so sinful and wretched as me and as you. Church, thank you so much, Jesus. You've done so much. Help me to please communicate your word clearly. And would your word go out with power, strength, and authority. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's read the first four verses of chapter 8. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh. Why? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What a, what a powerful way to start off chapter 8. What a powerful way. If you read that first verse, what are some words that stand out to you? Now. Ooh, everybody say now. now. What's another one? Now. No, don't go through all of them. <laughs> Give me one more. I'll tell you if you're right or not. <laughs> it's, it's like one that we should always like recognize whenever we see it. Therefore, therefore, what is that therefore? So if we see the word therefore, we have to ask, what is it therefore? Very good. Um, Paul is summing up everything that he's been talking about this whole time. And so he says, there is therefore. So because we've been in verses 5-1, justified, 5.1, because 5.10, we've been reconciled. 5.15 through 17, because we were dead to Adam and alive in Christ. 
6.3, because we've been baptized in, into the death of Christ. 6.23, because we've been set free from sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. What was the other word we recognized? Now. Everybody say now. 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 We are free from condemnation, not just on the day of judgment. Not just on the day of judgment, but now. Now, what are the implications of that? The implications of that are insane. Because even as we continue to experience and participate in sin, even based off of the sin you did yesterday, and the sin you're doing today, and the sin you're planning on doing, if you are in Christ, you are now under no condemnation. That's insane. It's almost unfathomable. That's why Paul always supplements these crazy statements with sin still matters. Because a person in their right mind will look at this and say, well, what does my sin matter? What does it matter if I sin? Right? But does sin matter? Absolutely it matters. He just went through all chapter 6 letting you know that your sin matters. But then he follows up with this. Now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now there's no condemnation. That's the crazy part. How can that be true? Recap of chapter 6, verse 5. It says, If we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like, like his. What Paul's trying to say is, he's trying to let the believer know that we've participated in a death already. What kind of death, though? A spiritual death. Yeah. Whenever people say, like, oh, you're, you're dead spiritually, I always feel like that makes death, like, eh, you know, I don't, it's like spiritual, you know, like I was talking about it with Josh, like I, I'm, I'm there in the spirit, you know, it's like that, I feel like that means like you go somewhere and you have somebody FaceTiming you, it's like they're there, but they're not, you know, it almost makes it like not real, it makes it ineffectual, like you've died, but you've died spiritually, then I, did I really die? But this passage is going to help us understand like, yeah, you actually died spiritually, and hopefully we can break that down and have a better understanding of what that means. But he's saying that you've already experienced a death if you're in Christ. Your spirit has died. The old spirit, the old you, is dead. It was crucified on the cross with Christ. But the body that you live in now, the body that you have is sinful and dead and dying and evil. Right? So picture this. You have a perfect spirit that is Christ's. Your old spirit is dead. But the body that you live in now is sinful and it's dying and it's an abomination right? Those two are who you are. You have a perfect spirit because of what Christ did for you. He gave you his spirit, but then you also live in a dead, sinful body. Those two truths are a reality today, right? That's the recap of chapter 6, is that Paul is saying that he wants to do the things that, or he can't do the things he wants to do. He doesn't want to do the things that he shouldn't be doing, and that's the battle of the, sin, of the, of the flesh and the spirit. In our salvation, our spirit was reborn and it was made into the image of Christ. Our spirit was paid for, not our flesh, right? So when you give your life to Christ, your spirit is crucified. You're not crucified because obviously you're still here, right? But your spirit was. And your spirit was crucified with Christ. It died on the cross. So the spirit side of you is died to sin, but the body will also die. When your spirit appears before God, you will be sinless and perfect because we'll have Christ's spirit. Our bodies will die, and that will be the consequence of our eternal security. So because you're saved, 
your body has to die because it's sinful, just like your spirit was. We'll, we'll break that down even more. That's kind of like what we're going to be talking about. We're going to break that down even more. So as believers, we should no longer fear condemnation. Why? Everyone look at verse 2. Everyone look at verse 2. You should no longer fear condemnation. Why? For the law of the spirit of life has what? Set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So what does it mean to be reborn spiritually? What does that mean? To be reborn spiritually. Simple. It's not a trick question. It means to be given a new what? Spirit. To be reborn spiritually is to be given a new spirit. And that is what the spirit of life is in that verse. That refers to the spirit spoken on earlier. So the, the, the law demands your death. And that death was paid for by your old spirit. Okay? Our old spirit died on the cross with Christ and is now reborn. So, here's the good news. Is you're no longer bound to a law that calls for your death. If you're in Christ, your spirit is no longer bound to the law that demands death for sin. You've been freed from that. You've been given freedom from that law. And the crazy thing is, is that because even though we still sin, we don't deserve to die because of our sin anymore. That's nuts. You kidding me? You're nuts, bro. God has no reason to be angry with you anymore if you're in Christ. But Alex, I still sin. I still deal with my sin. Like, you don't know what I've done in the past. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And this is the crazy thing, because does sin still matter? Yeah. It absolutely still matters. But does sin have an effect on your eternal salvation if you're in Christ? What's the answer? No. It doesn't. So for those of you guys that said yes, <laughs> the answer is no. It does not have an effect on your salvation if you're in Christ. And that's insane because it should. It should. Christ's Spirit is given to us. Christ's spirit was what allowed Christ to live perfectly. Christ's spirit was perfect. When you give your life to Christ, you're given that same spirit. So now your spirit is what? Perfect. What? Yes. Believe it. You're given a new spirit, a perfect spirit, Christ's spirit. This isn't to say that your sin isn't present though. Just because you have a perfect spirit doesn't mean that your flesh is perfect. Remember, you are two things at the same time. You have a perfect spirit that is in Christ and you live in a body of death. You understand? If you understand, just stare at me. Good. Very good, very good, very good. Okay. Very good. You have a perfect spirit that is in Christ. You have Christ's perfect spirit, but you live in a body of death. So because you have a perfect spirit does not mean that your sin is going to go away. Okay? By faith, we're given a new spirit. Our bodies will eventually pay the penalty for our sin. And they'll pay for that penalty in death. So, okay, your turn. What have we been free? What have we been set free from based off of that verse that we just read? What, what have we been set free from? Look at your Bible. Everybody look at your Bibles. What have we been set free from? Hold on, bro. What is it? Okay, law of sin and death. Yeah, very good. How? 
Same verse. Yeah, the law of the Spirit who sets you free in Christ Jesus. Exactly. Verses 3 through 4, let's read them. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That sounds really confusing, but it's not, I promise. Let's break this down. Okay, next. Oh, wait, actually, it's the same one. Uh, yeah, that last part. For God has done what the law could not do. What could the law not do? Don't cheat. What could the law not do? What is that? Justify. Yes. Give me more. Give me more. The law cannot save you? Very good. Come on. It can't make you righteous. The law could not be fulfilled in sinful flesh, in you. You had no ability, zero, to fulfill the law. We're going to read later on that even if you wanted to, it is impossible for flesh to fulfill the law of God. It is impossible. The law could not make you righteous. The law could not fulfill, be fulfilled in you. But that's the requirement to get into heaven. You want to get into heaven? You have to live according to the law. You have to be perfect. You have to live righteously. But you can't. That's the problem. So God did what the law could not do. He fulfilled the law in the flesh. How did he do that? Verse 3. How do you do that? Everybody read that out loud. One, two, three. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> you know, we do that every week, and I don't know why we have a problem with that now. <laughs> we read verses every week together. Let's break that down. Let's break that down. God did what the law could not do. The law could not make you righteous. It could not be fulfilled in you. God sent his son in the likeness of you and me, in the likeness of sin, so that he would fulfill the law on our behalf. Let's break that down. Jesus was born of a virgin, was sinless from birth. Because he was God, he literally did what we could not do, which is live perfectly according to the law. Our flesh literally could not do that. In fact, we delighted in breaking God's law. In the death of Christ, here's the crazy part, perfection paid the price for sinfulness by becoming sinfulness so that perfection might bestowed, be bestowed upon us. I'll say that again. In the death of Christ, perfection paid the price for sinfulness by becoming sinfulness so that perfection might be bestowed upon sinful people. Perfection became sinful so that the sinful could be perfect. That make sense? Perfection came down, offered himself, paid the way for sinful creation to become perfect. So now we have the perfect spirit, the same spirit that empowered Christ to live perfectly. Now we have that spirit. So when we die, God doesn't see our old sinful spirit, but our new spirit that is in Christ. So now when the Father looks down at us, what does He see? 
And the Father looks down at you. What does he see? Well, he sees that your body is sinful, and he sees that you're still in the flesh, and that you make bad decisions every single day, and you still rebel. He sees all of it. He sees it all. He sees a sinful, dying body of flesh. But one day, our flesh goes into the grave, which is its just penalty, right? What is deser- what, what's the penalty for sin? Death. You live in a body of sin, so what's the penalty? You just said it, death, death. Your body will die because of sin. Your spirit already died because of sin, but now you're given a new spirit. Now you're given a new spirit. So your body will die, but your spirit will, be, will continue on. Is, that, is this making sense to you guys? So when he looks at our spirit, what does he see? When God looks at our spirit, what does he see? Yeah. He said the son, Jesus' spirit. That's exactly right. He sees Christ's perfection. Your perfection? No. Your perfection died. Or, or your, not your perfection. Your spirit died. It's Christ's spirit in you now. That's what he sees. That's what he sees. So now our body's sin has no bearings on our standing before God because you already have a perfect spirit. Your spirit's already perfect. So now when you sin, it bears no standing before your perfect spirit in God. Because your flesh will pay for that sin one day when it dies. But your spirit will continue on. It's the condition of our spirit that matters, not the condition of our flesh. We'll talk a little bit more about what that means later. Again, this is not a license to sin. And this is not to say that your sin doesn't matter because your sin totally matters. But Paul isn't addressing if sin matters or not. He's addressing your eternal security, all right? And that security has nothing to do with the condition of your flesh, but with the condition of your spirit. Is this making sense? Yo, this is hecka theological. We're getting into the nitty-gritty of Romans, but this is the truth. Um, so, question, and I want you guys to answer yes or no. Is my sin a reflection of my standing with God? Think real hard. Is my sin a reflection of my standing with God if I'm in Christ? No. 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 Your sin is not a reflection of your standing with God. If you are in Christ, then you have Christ's perfect spirit, and your sin has no effect of your standing with God. Your sin cannot affect your relationship with God in the sense that your sin, you cannot sin your way out of, relation, out of a relationship that you didn't earn, right? Because if you were to earn yourself into that relationship, then you'd be able to sin your way out of it. But you didn't earn your way into that relationship, did you? No, that relationship was a gift to you. It was given to you, so you can't return it. It's given to you. That's it. You messed up. Second question. Is my sin a sign that I was never saved in the first place? Is my sin a sign that I was never saved in the first place? Hmm. Okay. We'll talk about that. But let's look at the flesh. As you arrive before God, you'll have shed that flesh. That thing that offends God so. Your flesh. Your flesh. It offends God. But that flesh will be shed before you see the Father. So God will never have to experience or never be able to see that flesh in person. 
Because by the time you are with the Father, that flesh will have died. Is this making sense? I hope so. So what are the dangers here? There's two dangers. Two dangers here. Okay. The first is if you remain confused about this. This is really important. If you remain confused about this, then you'll either revert to two things. Self-righteousness. Right? That's the first one. If you remain confused about this, then you'll revert to self-righteousness and you'll strive to earn your standing before God. A standing that you never earned in the first place. It was given to you. So if you don't understand this, this is one of the dangers that you're facing. The second is you'll go into the opposite direction and you'll be so discouraged and defeated by your sin that you'll give up on faith altogether. So on one hand, you're taking an extreme and you're trying to earn your way to Jesus and you're trying to earn your way with favor to God. On the other hand, you'll be so defeated by your sin and death because it is impossible to do that that you'll leave and, and, and you'll just dive deeper and deeper into your sin. So what's the balance? What's the balance? Is living, knowing that your eternal security isn't based off of your sin or not. It's based off of the condition of your spirit. Have you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior? If so, then you've been given a new spirit and your sin has no bearing on your standing with God. But does your sin still matter? Absolutely. So the balance is right there in the middle. You love God and you stay away from sin, yet you're still going to sin. But you strive for holiness. Making sense? So here's the application. You cannot improve perfection. You cannot do better than Jesus did. Jesus lived perfectly and that same life is given to you. You cannot do better than what he did. So stop trying. You can't. All you can do now is live in the Spirit. We now have a freedom to serve Christ without worrying about our future. If you're in Christ, you don't have to worry about where you're going to be when you die. And that's the beauty about being in Christ. But it's not to say your sin doesn't matter. But Alex, my sin bothers me. I hate my sin. Good. Good. That is actually a sign that you're saved. And that's such, that's a funny thing about being saved. It's you hating your sin is actually a sign that you're saved. Your sin, if your sin bothers you, then that's a good thing. Because it motivates you to do better in that area so that you don't sin. And it proves that the Spirit of Christ is in you convicting you of your sin. So if we worry about our actions, it's only proof that we're children of God. Is this making sense? You sure? I'll stop right now. <laughs> no, I won't. I got like 30, 30 minutes. Can I start over? <laughs> okay, let's pray. Uh, Father God. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> let's keep going. Let's keep going. Next slide. Consequences for living in the flesh. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on. And the Spirit. Uh, okay, let's read it. Verses 5 through 11. It says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the thing of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's impossible. You, however, are not in the flesh. You're in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit dwells in you, 
Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. And so Paul is actually saying everything that we've just said. So how do I know if I'm truly saved even though I still sin? Paul doesn't necessarily ask that question, but, but the question is implied by the way he gives the text, by the, by the content of what we're talking about. But before we answer that, before we move forward, Paul's going to do some labeling. So he labels the unsaved human condition as living according to the flesh, okay? And then he labels the, the saved human condition as living according to the Spirit, okay? So what's the unsaved human condition? Living according to the what? And the saved, living according to the Spirit. So how many are there? There's two, right? There's two conditions. You're either one or the other, okay? So, going back to the question, how do I know if I'm still saved, if I'm truly saved, if I still sin? Hmm. Well, here's the answer. Before coming to faith, there was no tug of war inside of you. Before coming to faith, you didn't give a dang if you sinned or not. You didn't care. You just sinned. There was no conviction about it. You just did it. But now, there's a tug of war. Now, you don't sin as easily. Now, you think twice about it. Why is that? There was no counterweight to resist sin. Here's the thing. The unsaved mind only cared about the immediate consequences for sin. I'm not going to rob that bank because I'm going to spend my, the rest of my life in prison. That's the natural response to sin. That's carnal. That's carnality, okay? The saved mind cares about both the immediate and the eternal consequences of our sin. Okay? That's the difference. But before salvation, our motives and desires were always evil, always selfish, always self-centered. Look at verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. So what's the end result if the mind is set on the flesh? Everybody looking at their Bibles. What's the result if your mind is set on the flesh? Death. Everybody say death. One, two, three. Death. Death. So your mind does a complete 180. You notice that? Your mind does a complete 180. In one instance, your carnality is set on death. On the other, your spirit is set on life. It does a 180. Look at verses 7 and 8. Check this 180 out. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it is not to submit, submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It is impossible. The hostile mind, the, the mind that is hostile to God is not only defiant, but it literally cannot submit to God's law. Even if you wanted to, you cannot. It is impossible. Why? Because it's only because its only interest was to satisfy itself. Before Christ, your only interest was to satisfy yourself. And Paul says that, that, that it's literally impossible for that mind to please God. It is literally impossible for that kind of mind to please God. Even when God reveals himself to us in reference to the law, 
God gave the law to his people. But you know what the people used that law for? They used it as a means to sin even more. The law came, was like, was like a recipe for sin for the people. It, it, it made sin that much more evident in us. It didn't free us from our sin, but it made sin that much more like spotlight. You guys get what I'm saying? Man took the law and used it as a means to sin all the more. And the unbeliever has absolutely no regard for sin. They don't give a rip about it. Okay? Look at verse 9. Look at the contrast. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Here's the condition. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Oof. Oof. Being in the Spirit. Before, you didn't give a rip about sin. You did not care about sin. You just did it. Now you care. Now you care. If the Spirit of God is in you. Now we feel a burden towards sin. Even if there's a chance, even if we sin in private and there's a chance that nobody will find out about it, you still feel convicted about it. You still feel convicted about it. You still feel a burden for it, not to do it. We still feel a burden towards sin. Sin, all of a sudden, matters. Why does it matter? How does that happen? That sin in one instance, in one day, does not matter. And in the next, it's all that matters. That only happens when the Spirit of God comes upon you. It's because we are saved. We now have concerns for the way God thinks of us. You now actually care about the way God thinks about you. And that's the funny proof about being a Christian. It's funny, it's funny that only Christians worry if they're saved or not. You ever think about that? You go into a room full of unbelievers, they're not talking about if they're saved or not. They don't give a dang. But if you go into a room full of believers, that's the only place you'll find a discussion about losing your salvation. Only Christians care about if they lose their salvation or not. Unbelievers don't care. So only us, only, we're the only ones who are going to talk about, and are you saved? It's like, am I saved? I sinned, and that means I'm still saved? The very fact that you have that question is proof that you're saved. Making sense? Only those who are saved worry about their eternal security. And Paul would argue that that concern is evidence for a result of being saved. It's not evidence that you're not saved. So, are you worried about not being saved? Bless you. You're welcome. <laughs> Your whole hair went poof like that. <laughs> yeah, don't sneeze. I'll call you out, dude. Yeah. So the question is, are you guys worried about being saved? And you don't have to answer out loud. But does that question burden you? Like, man, am I really saved? Like, I sin so much. Am I really saved? The only reason why that worry is there is because the spirit inside of you is persisting against sin. It's persisting and persisting and persisting and it's fighting and it's fighting and it's fighting your sin. That's the only reason why you have that thought. So, is sin evidence of not being saved? Is sin evidence of not being saved? Answer? No, it's not. Because you sin, that is not a factor in your salvation. What is? Jesus. Very good. 
Jesus. Yes, Jesus. We'll talk about what that means, actually. Look at verse 10 through 11. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit of life, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now Paul answers the question, what if the sin I have is proof that I was never saved in the first place? Right? So now we're not just asking, okay, I'm saved, but I think I like sinned my way out of salvation. We answer that. You can't do that. Right? It's impossible. It's literally impossible. Um, sin is not uh, a depiction of your salvation, but this ho- the, the Holy Spirit is. Um, and I, and I'll, I'll talk about more of that later. Um, but it's the condition of your spirit that matters, not the condition of your flesh. Um, what he's asking now is, well, what if I never was saved in the first place? Have you guys ever had that thought? Like, what if I, what if like my, my conversion was like fake and like I never really meant it? Um, so question, and we kind of just said this, but what is the definition of a Christian based on this verse? What is the definition of a Christian based on this verse? And I want you to take a look at it. Actually, turn to your neighbor. I'll give you guys 30 seconds. Go. What's the definition of a Christian based on this verse? Three, two, one, go. Verses 10 through 11. It's very easy. You guys can do it. Oh! Give me more. If Jesus is in you. Um, In other words, you know, some people might say actually like, oh, believing in Jesus, confessing your sins. If you tithe 80%, then you're an actual Christian. No, at least. But, but I, like confessing your sins and believing in Jesus, those are, those are how you are saved. But the definition of a Christian is somebody who has the Holy Spirit. If somebody who has the Spirit of Christ in them. So, what is the ultimate proof of your salvation? The ultimate proof. Not works not the lack of sin. What is the ultimate proof of your salvation? Huh? Christ in you. Christ in you. The Holy Spirit. That is the ultimate 100% proof that you're saved. It's Christ in you. The Holy Spirit. That's proof that sin is not undoing your salvation. The Spirit is in you and the Spirit testifies that you are saved and that you're sealed. So how do I know that I have the Spirit? That's the next question, right? Okay, if the Holy Spirit is a sign that I am saved, how do I know if I have the Spirit? And that's a good question. A good sign that you have the Spirit is if you're convicted of your sin. If your mindset towards sin has changed. Or if you hate sin. Or if you have a desire to please God. All these things are sign of salvation, not disqualifications. And the thing is, is that the enemy would like you to think that the signs that you're actually saved are actually the things that disqualify you. And that is not true. It's not true. So let's look at verses 12 through 14. So then, brothers. Ah, the consequences of being led by the Spirit. Right. 12 through 14. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. 
But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You'll live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Here's another reason we shouldn't doubt our salvation. And it blends in with the first. What's Paul saying in these two verses? What's the threat? Paul's contrasting two different ways of life. Living according to the flesh, which ends in death, and living according to the Spirit, which ends in life and sonship. So again, it's the implied answer to the implied question. Paul here isn't explicitly addressing the question, well, maybe if I'm not truly saved and my sin is evidence that I'm not truly in Christ. Maybe I'm not truly saved. Maybe my sin is evidence that I am not in Christ. Well, if you're still asking that question, on top of all the other answers that we've given, Paul answers again. And he says there's two ways to live. You either live in the flesh or you live in the Spirit. Look at verse 13. We're going to expound on this a little bit more. For if you live according to the flesh, you will what? Die. But if you live according, but if you live by the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Just remember how you thought before you were saved. Just remember, if you could still remember that, I could still remember it. And it's funny to think back on how like my mind worked back then. It's like, what was I thinking, dude? <laughs> like, why did I do the things that I did? It was because I was, I was living in a body of sin and death and my spirit was selfish and evil. Um, but just remember the way you thought before you were saved. I mean, honestly, did you care about your sin? Did you even think twice about it? I mean, you could honestly care less. The only concern you had was for the immediate consequences of sin. Think now of how you view sin. Think now of how you think of sin. Is there a difference? Yeah. If you're in Christ, there's definitely a difference. Even if you can't really put your finger on it, there is most definitely a difference. We totally care now. Some more than others, but we care. Why? Because the flesh is at war with the Spirit. Now, as a reborn Christian, we have the Spirit of Christ, yet we live in a dying, sinful body. There's a war going on. And so, if you're experiencing a battle between, between your flesh and the Spirit inside of you, if you're experiencing that battle, it's not evidence that you're not saved. On the contrary, it's because you're saved that you are in a battle. It's because you are saved that you battle your sin. And that's funny because we hate the battle, but the battle is proof. The battle is proof that you're in Christ. So don't be unhappy that you struggle with your sin. Instead, rejoice because your struggle proves that you're a child of God. But it's somebody who does not struggle with sin that should be afraid if they're actually a child of God. It's somebody who lives comfortably with sin, who doesn't think about sin or offending God. It's that person that should question, am I actually saved? You guys following me? This verse is a reminder. It's a reminder that our current struggle with sin is better than our life beforehand in the flesh. It's better to battle with sin than to live in the flesh. That's what Paul's saying. It's better that you battle and fight and struggle with your sin 
than to walk comfortably in the flesh. This struggle leads to life, and that life is better than the blissful unbelief that was leading you to death. So, people sometimes read this verse and they say, okay, we have an obligation to fight this battle now. Okay, I have a, I have a, a choice. I can either fight the battle or not. But what, people who think that like that need to look at this verse and throw that thought away because it's wrong. Because you're not obligated to battle. Um, you're in a battle. Regardless if you want to or not. You have to fight. God has obligated it for you because you have two things inside of you that are waging war. You have the spirit of life that is Christ, and then you have your body of death. And those things naturally are gonna battle. Now, whether you choose to win the battle or not, that's up to you. Whether you choose to give in to your sin or to give in to the spirit, that's completely up to you. But here's the thing, the spirit of God empowers you to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Now it's up to you. Are you gonna decide to put to death the deeds of the flesh or to give over to the flesh? That's the choice you have. And here's the thing, the battle is slow. It's ugly. It's messy. It's hard. It's complicated. And it's subject to take steps back and then steps forward and then steps back. But the fact of the battle is proof of your regeneration. And that's the ironic truth of Romans 8. The proof that you are not under condemnation is that you're struggling with your sin all the time. The proof that you're not under condemnation is that you're always struggling with sin. And that's the battle, is that we're always going to struggle with sin. Look at verses 15 through 17. The consequences of having the spirit of adoption. It says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, who, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs and of God, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So here's Paul's final proof of our salvation. It's found in the consequences of having the spirit of adoption. One of the proofs that we are saved is we cry, Abba, Father. We cry, Abba, Father. I love this verse. It's a beautiful verse, and I hope that I can do it justice. But when I read this passage, I just see the Trinity. References of the Trinity are all over Romans. They're all over Romans. You're under the wrath of God. The Son provides a way for you to be saved by giving himself over, and the Spirit seals you and convicts you. Everything that we see in Scripture, every act of God that we see in Scripture is always Trinitarian. Always Trinitarian. The Father and the Son. When you see an act that's done by the Son, it's always followed by an act of the Father and the Spirit, right? Whenever you see an act of the Father, it's always followed by the act of the Son and the Spirit. They're always working together. They're always doing everything together. At Jesus' baptism, how do we see the Trinity working? At Jesus' baptism, how do we see the Trinity working? Well, the Son is being baptized, the Father speaks, and the Holy Spirit what? Descends. Descends. And then the Father says, after the Spirit descends on the Son, the Father says, this is my Son, whom I am well pleased. Right? So you can imagine the Spirit filling Jesus. When you give your life to Christ, 
the beautiful thing is that you're allowed into the Trinity. You're given access into the Trinity. You're baptized the same way Christ was. You're baptized the same way Christ was. Your spirit is killed. It's brought back to life and you're given a new spirit. The Holy Spirit descends upon you and then the Father God says, this is my son and daughter in whom I am well pleased. You are allowed access into the relationship that the Father has with the Son, that the Son has with the Father by the power of the Spirit. What? The proof of our salvation is when we cry out, Abba, Father. Question, who else cried out, Abba, Father? Sunday school answer, and it's the right answer. Jesus cried out, Abba, Father. The garden was one of those instances where Jesus cries out, Abba, Father. I'm going to get all Trinitarian on you guys, all right? So watch out. Matthew 26, verses 36 through 42. Matthew 26, verses 36 through 42. Everybody turn there. I want you to underline those two instances where he says, my father. This is where the English translation of the words don't do the actual translation justice. The literal meaning of those two words is Abba. Abba. Now, Abba was, a, was an everyday word. It was a family word. No Jew in their right mind would dare call God Abba or Father because God was Lord to them. What they didn't understand that God was that God could be Lord and Abba. Look at the effects of the word Abba. When Jesus called God Abba, you guys realize that he changed the whole way we look at God. He changed the whole way we look at God. Up to that point, God was seen as semi-distant. He was seen as holy and perfect and unreachable. He was seen as far off, only available at the temple upon sacrifice, not personal. When Jesus called God Abba, he changed all of that. When Jesus called God Father, he changed all of that. He made God close and personal and intimate. He painted a picture of a loving and dear Father whom we can cry out to, Abba, Father. The literal translation of that is Daddy, Papa. And he did that so that we would see his father the same way he sees his father, as Abba. And this is the beauty in the Trinity. The father sent the son in the likeness of sin, for sin, to be condemned in the flesh, that the law of God might be fulfilled in us. The son works all of that out. The spirit of Christ is given to us, Perfection handed to imperfection, that we too, like Jesus, might be called sons, adopted, still now sons and daughters. So the Spirit now gives you a way to enter into this beautiful relationship that the Father and the Son have. He allows you to experience the love that the Son has for the Father, and He allows us to experience the love that the Father has for the Son through. And by the Spirit, we are privileged to join in their love as adopted sons and daughters. 
And so now picture this. We're allowed into that window, into that room where the Father and the Son and the Spirit are. We're allowed into that place. And so now the Father loves the Son. The Father loves you the same amount, with the same amount of passion and fervency. He loves you the same way He loves His Son. What? How? Think about that. The Father loves you the same way, the same amount in that of His Son. That should be unbelievable. It should be unfathomable because you and I are not worth it. We should not be allowed even close to that because that is holy and perfect and you and I are not. We're not. But when we confess our sins, when we give our lives and surrender it to the authority of Christ, we're given a new spirit, the Holy Spirit. And because we're given the Holy Spirit, we are allowed into the relationship that the Father has with the Son. Do you understand that that's why God did everything? That's why God made everything? That's why God created? That's why God sent the Son? Was so that we would experience the love that the Father has for the Son and that the Son has for the Father? It's by the Spirit that we can experience that? You understand? I hope so. I hope so. And so now, just like Christ is a son, because of the Spirit, we are adopted. And we, I too, me too, I am in equal standing with the Son. Not in authority, but in position. Not in authority, but in position. Because Jesus is God, but he's also a son. And so am I. And so are you. If the Spirit of God is living in you. And I pray that if he's not today, that he would be. So that you would experience this love that the Father has for the Son. And the love that the Son has for the Father by the power of the Spirit. Amen?